Last year, a single mom walked into Nick DiNardo's legal aid office in Cincinnati, Ohio. And with her, she carried a bag full of receipts, and she was distraught. See, the problem started with this. She took on an $800 loan from a payday loan business to cover some emergency expenses. And this is the deal. She pays $222 for four months and uses her car for collateral. That will be what she needs for the loan. Well, four months ended, and then she got a letter to tell her that she still owed $1,000, exactly, because those were the processing fees for the loan. She told them, I can't pay that. And they said, no worries. We have another contract for you to sign. The next contract was $230 for 11 months. She paid that off. And then when she got done with that, they told her there were additional fees she had to pay on top of that. And now she couldn't afford her rent, utilities, and to buy her kids clothes. In all, she had paid $3,878 on an original loan of $800. And now she was asking for help. For most of us, when we hear that, that could make us pretty angry. That is just not right. That is not just. Now take that frustration and anger towards that payday loan office and just extrapolate even greater. That is God's frustration and anger towards his people Israel for their injustice to the poor. Today, we are going to see how Israel treats the poor, the needy, and afflicted in the time of Amos. Today, the target of God's message is Israel. But my question for us is could we too as the church in America, be in the crosshairs of God's word. Shall we find out? Let's do it. Let's go to Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. It's printed in your worship guide. I encourage you to follow me as I read God's word. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those 
who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who is strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is, not, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves pressed down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome as we are going through the minor prophet of Amos this fall. And here we have a rancher from the south. And he has a message from the Lord for Israel, the northern kingdom. Now at first, people in the north, when they hear from the southern kingdom that's been division, divided, and hearing from this guy from the south, they're probably very skeptical about hearing his message. But as we saw last week, Amos, this rancher, he gives a message of judgment against the nations opposing Israel. And you think, here is an enemy, Amos, from the south, but an enemy of our enemy is a friend. So they must have been pretty encouraged so far about the message from the Lord through Amos. But then things started to become a little bit more clear, that there started to be this circle of these nations that were going around Israel and they were getting closer and closer these judgments. And we saw the seven oracles against the nations around Israel. But now we get to the last oracle. And it's the longest one. The one we've just read. And the target is Israel. Imagine their reaction. Oh, Amos, thank you so much. We love this. Give us more about ways that we can change. We love hearing this message. As we'll see later in Amos, that is not the reaction that Israel had to the prophet. They do not want to hear this message. I wonder if we might have the same problem. See, it's easy to say, here is Israel's problems 2,700 years ago. I'm glad we don't have to deal with their problems today. And we might end up just enjoying the history of this book. It sounds good. There's great poetry, all these kind of things. And we circumvent the emphasis of this book. 
that God's people are the target of this message. I feel like I have to make some caveats and qualifications. I'm sorry I do that a lot, but I think it's important so I don't lose you in um, the applications that are going to come. The primary audience of this message is for that age, Israel. The prophet's culmination, the fruition of the prophets, the fruition of the church, they are ultimately found in the person and message and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we can see it most clearly. However, I believe, and our domination believes, I believe the Bible teaches this, that we are the new Israel, the church. And this message can still hit us as God's people. That we might too be the target of the message of Amos. There are principles in this for us. Now again, there's warnings. We could be too specific. And we don't give justice to the text and the heart behind it. I'm going to give different applications as we go through Amos. Some of them might hit. Some of them might not. I'm not saying they come directly from the passage, but hopefully we might see how they might hit us, and they might in different places. I think it also would be not fair to the text if we became too abstract and we didn't let the Holy Spirit work on us and change our hearts and behavior. Now I want to prepare you like Israel, we can have a negative reaction to these messages. One way we can hear these applications is we can become very defensive. Obviously, pastor's not talking about me, or the word's not talking about me. Those are other people. Don't you realize I've done X and Y in my life? I've done this or that, and that gets me off the hook. That's one reaction you can have, defensiveness. Also, another reaction we can have, and we do this well in the West, is we can become very individualistic. We never like to think of ourselves as part of something of a group or something corporate. We love to be the outlier. Oh, that's how other people in the group act. I'm different. Don't lump me in with them. But we see in this passage, the yous mentioned are not you individual, they are you plural. You all, if you will, if you're in the south. It's the they. This is corporate Israel. And therefore, this is for us corporately, the church. It might not be tied to you directly, but you are a part of the church. And you should be a part of trying to change things and condemn the church when we are lumped into these categories and we have done these things. Also, you might respond, seems like pastor has an axe to grind. Please hear me, I'm not on a mission to call people out. I am on a mission for God to find us out. And myself included. I'm part of the church. 
And I need to hear this message and how hard it might be to hear. And lastly, probably the number one barriers that we put up to the message of Amos, especially in this time, especially two months before an election, we can make this message seem just political. Maybe you're on the left and you hear the message of Amos and it talks about authority in heaven and a call for us to surrender our desires, our self-expressionism, and also calling us to weed out some of those sexual sins that we have in our lives. And we hear that message and we think that's just conservative talk. Here, these are the words of the Lord, not just a conservative church speaking. At the same time, for those of us on the right, we might think this is simply a political message. Here is Amos talking about the poor, talking about social justice. Is he simply quoting Marx? Is that what this is? Is this just Karl Marx being taught in church? Hear me, church. The prophets came 2,000 years before Karl Marx did. These aren't simply messages of the 19th century and economic philosophy. These are messages from the Lord for us. Do not throw the baby out of the bathwater because Marx might have taken some of these thoughts of care for the poor and the oppressed. There is something unique about this book of Amos, unlike the other prophets. The other prophets continuously talk about Israel's worshiping idols, foreign gods. You see little of this in the book of Amos. Usually I find it kind of hard to go through the prophets because I don't think any of us are carving idols to Ashtra or to Baal. But the truth is, I think this message then hits closer to home. Instead, the people in Israel at this time are worshiping their summer homes. That's actually mentioned here, summer homes. They're worshiping their beds made of ivory. Worshiping their material things. And in that, God is specifically calling them out for their oppression towards other people. They are neglecting the poor and the oppressed. Well, let's see exactly what God calls Israel out for in these passages. Again, this is the, the continual formula of these oracles. It says, you know, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. It doesn't mean that there's simply just four things or three things. It just means there were so many that, many that God now comes to the nations in judgment. And unlike the other oracles of judgment about the specific things that these nations did, the Lord gives a longer list to Israel. And here are how I'll group them into three things that he specifically calls Israel out for. Okay? We paying attention so far? We got it? Okay, here's the three things. Number one, 
Sale of the poor into Israelite slavery. Number two, oppression and exploitation of the poor in the legal system. Three, sexual abuse and mistreatment of the marginalized. Let's take a look at each one of these three, shall we? Number one, verse six, the sale of the poor into Israelite slavery. We can see here that they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. See, even in thriving Israel, this is one of the most prosperous times in Israel's history, there were still people that were poor. And what was happening is, these people that owed debts and could not pay them, these people that were owed the debts would take these people and sell them into indentured servitude to get their money. Silver, the word here is righteous, right? I think it should be the innocent is probably the better translation in the Hebrew. They are selling the innocent for this money. And the thing is, when he says they're innocent, there are many things that are happening to the Israelites. Whether it's the death of a family member, a crop failure, other things that are out of their control. They have been put into bad places. But then when they cannot pay their debts, people that they owe their debts to sell them, even to the point where they sell them even for a pair of sandals. And the reason it uses that kind of analogy is because it's not very much money at all, but they still sell them for that. Well, we might say, good thing we do not live in that age. We sell people for their debts into indentured servanthood. Do you know in Missouri, there are more payday loan businesses than Walmarts, McDonald's, and Starbucks combined. You know these payday loan businesses? You know what they do? They target specifically, it's, the, the biggest crowd is 25 to 44-year-old white women. So in fact, 19 million households are serviced by payday loans. That's one in six. And what happens here is the average loan is about $350 is what um, organizations round it to. And the average is you pay $15 on the loan for every $100. That's a 400% annualized rate. You might say $350, that doesn't sound like much. But here's what happens. These businesses get people caught in a cycle of fees that when they can't pay it, they do another one and another one. Until the cycle comes until these people are trapped in a debt trap. This has been a problem for a while. I mean, this has been brought up since about 2012. There's a lot of press on this. And one thing that legislation has done is that they've curbed the rate that you can actually do. Like they said, the 400% annualized rate. Now they've curbed it in many states to just 36%. But here's the thing. Even when they did that, what happens is there's still ways to get around it. 
What happens for the poor is that there's less money out there to help them in these situations. And cash just kind of disappears for people in tough spots. Now hear me. I'm not talking about legislation as the answer. It's fascinating. It just came out last year, an article in the New York Times about this problem and how they've tried to solve the problem, but it's still become a problem. People are still struggling, still issues. And they highlighted a church in New York City. And this is what they do. The church gives microloans to people that are struggling. And when they give the microloans, part of giving the loan is they have to then have financial classes at the church and also a financial coach. And what they've seen is when the church has given their own money, reduced percentages, helped in tough situations, that they've found that people start climbing out of these struggles productively. This isn't Christianity Today writing this article. This is the New York Times. Could we, as the church, help in these situations better than this? I think about people, these guys protesting outside. I think it's okay to protest at Planned Parenthood, but I wonder why we don't also protest at the payday loan place. And we don't also go out there to people that are going into the places and go, guess what, we can give you a different solution. Just as we tell people that go into Planned Parenthood, there is a better way. But you don't hear that, do you? Don't hear the church outside those businesses trying to help. Next, verse 7 and also the latter part of verse 8. It's talking about fines that people were facing because of criminal charges. And one way that people paid for criminal charges or things against them, their debts, is one they would pay by their outer cloak, their jacket. Another way they would pay is by giving up wine and paying the debt by giving their wine to people. And this is what was happening in Israel. The people that were given these fines, whether it was government officials or other people that were esteemed in Israelite community, they were taking these jackets and taking this wine and they were bringing it to festivals or drinking them in worship services. And here is the irony. They go to worship God that he would give them mercy, but they do not give mercy to individuals that are in tough space and tough places. And God is condemning this. That you take these fines, you take their jackets, you take their wine, you trample on their heads. You turn aside the way of the afflicted. And you come and try to worship me while you reap their benefits. Right? Again, this might seem abstract from us. Is that really speaking to us and in our age? Do we have a system, a law system, 
a criminal justice system that keeps the afflicted down, do we? I am just perplexed as a church that we have not seen what has happened in the past 40 years in the criminal justice system in America. And we don't talk about this more. Do you realize since the early 80s, the increase in incarceration in the United States has increased by 700%. I'm not making this up for exaggeration. 700% the incarceration rate in the United States has increased. Do you realize that 655 people out of 100,000 people in the United States are in jail? 655 out of 100,000. That's double the amount of Russia, triple the amount of China, and 10 times the amount of any European country. And this is what we've done. Because it costs money to incarcerate people. That we've increased the fees. You know that people have to pay public defender fees now. Courtroom costs. They pay for emails in jail. Phone calls. The estimated family, its average, pays $13,000 in fines. Now hear me, you think I might be looking for political solutions. I'm not trying to look for political solutions. I'm wondering, where is the church? Instead of loving the poor and the oppressed, do you know what we do? Let's outsource the, their problems to the criminal justice system. Let's let law enforcement deal with the issues that we have not dealt with as the church. It's their problem. It's their issue. I wonder, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, that's what we've done in America. Because many people in jail, some justly in jail, don't get me wrong, okay? not saying just throw it all out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that many people are there because they have been trampled on. It's an effect of being poor, mental illness. And we just say, just send them off so we don't have to deal with them. We don't even have to see them. Then lastly, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Here the word for girl is used as household worker. And what was probably happening in Israel at that time is that the men of the household were using household girls and workers sexually. They were taking advantage sexually of the poor. And it was excused in Israel because they're simply just servants. We can use them in this way. So I can apply this too. I mean, 
many of you probably have seen in the news, high-profile pastors that have used their employees sexually. Now, I'm not going to name names, but it is bad. They think the power gives them the right to use women as objects to fill their desires. But I don't think that is the biggest problem in the church. I think the biggest problem is pornography in the church, even with Christian men and women. And many of us think we're not harming anyone by indulging in pornography. Johns Hopkins recently came out with great research that put correlation and connection with pornography and how it fuels sex trafficking. They found that one-third of people sex trafficked were used in the production of pornography. Hear me, it has gotten so bad that it's not the church just saying this. The culture is saying this. That there's an objectification of men and women that's fueling an industry like sex trafficking through pornography. All of these things, these three things I mention, it is in the middle, so that my holy name is profaned. The Lord is saying, Israel, you represent me in the world. You're profaning my character and who I am. I remember when I was in high school, when we had to go play sports at another school, what did we have to do, right? We had to wear a suit and tie, right? Because we wanted to represent the school and show a good image of the school to other schools. Now here, God is saying, Israel, you represent who I am. And this is what you're doing. I wonder, what are we representing of the Lord as the church in America? Especially in these hard times. You know, one reaction is to stick our heads in the ground. But are we being pressed to be a light to our community? Is God doing something through this to wake us up? Oh man, pastor, just bring on the guilt, right? Make me feel bad. This is the message of the church. This is the message of the gospel. Be better, do better, right? Is that the gospel message? I got enough going on. I got the pandemic. My kids are at home with school. It's an election coming up. They're forcing me to wear a mask all around. And now you want to give me, I got to do more? Come on, pastor, don't you realize some wisdom and some tact? This is not the time. Right? Oh, man, the Lord is so good. Verses 9 through 11 are so rich, and he does this 
unlike all the other nations, because God says there is something unique about my good news for you, Israel. Look at with me, verses 9 through 11, what God is doing after he gives these judgments upon them, what he says. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and it was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. See, the Lord is reminding Israel, when you came into the land, the Amorites, also would be known as the Canaanites, you were scared. You were persecuted. You were nothing. And this tribe that was there in the land, they felt huge. And they had everything, like huge trees. But I protected you. I came to you when you were weak, when you were nothing, and I gave you a land. And then God goes even earlier. Remember, it was worse. You were slaves in Egypt. You were oppressed. You were poor. And I came to you, and I saved you, and I delivered you from slavery. And then what else have I done? Even when you have occupied the land, I sent to you prophets who gave you messages and Nazarites who lived holy lives so they would guide you on the ways that you are to live. I still pursued you when you were going the wrong way. Why? Why, after all the stern judgment, does God remind them of the covenant promises and love he has for them? Because he's trying to tell them, my character towards you is that I care for the least of these, because that's who you were. That's what I did for you. And you are forgetting who you are. And you, you are marked by because then you do not care for the poor and the oppressed in your own land. Oh, how we forget one generation to another, don't we? Of faithfulness where God has rescued us. My dad Grew up in upstate New York on the tail end of the Depression. Seven people in his family. They lived in an apartment. His dad worked three jobs. The community came along, my father and that family. My dad got to go to a good school, got to go to medical school to become a surgeon, work at the University of Wisconsin. One generation away, just one away from poverty. I still wonder why my dad cans so much and still clips coupons because he knows how close he is. But I also think about the way that God came to my father later in life, and rescued him. And we saw the change in his life, my parents' life, both of them, that they started to house internationals in their home. 
When we took trips as a family, it wasn't vacations, it was mission trips to Africa and to poor places. Because they realized the faithfulness of God and how he has come to them. But how easily I forget. I forget how close I am to that place. How close I am to poverty, to being weak, to not having things. And then I mentioned these people this morning, people in the justice system or people that have been stuck in payday loans. And sometimes what is in the back of our minds, sometimes we say things like this, can't they just get their act together? Can't they make better choices? Stop having babies. Stop doing drugs. Stop drinking. Stop dropping out of school. Stop living off assistance. Get your act together. That's what we might say in the back of our minds. And this is what God says to us. Have you forgotten? That's who you were. Dead in your sin. And I rescued you. And I didn't say get your act together. No, I came to you through my son out of love. Here's the thing that we mostly do in evangelicalism in the church today. We just have a great ability to ignore the problem. I'm not intentionally hurting anyone. I just go about my business. And then when we see people protesting in the streets, when we see people crying out for help, we malign them. When they are asking for help. Where are you church? I need you. These are my African American brothers in my denomination that weep on the phone with me. They're weeping and they're saying, help us, help me. I stood in this building with six pastors, African American pastors in this community. Bible-believing pastors. And you know what they said that I should do? Tell your church we need help. Help us. And what do we say? Oh, BLM. That's what they stand for. Black Lives Matter. None of them were advocating for that. Oh, great. Emmaus Road. It's gone down the slippery slope. It's a liberal church now. They're going to put BLM signs outside. Social justice. He's going to start talking about white privilege. Systemic racism. Uh-oh. Right? Oh, he's a neo-Marxist now. Oh, my. I just, I, I want to tear out my hair at that. I do. Hear me. We are not the mainline church. I feel like that battle has been over. Okay? 
The battle of the liberal church is, I feel, is over in the evangelical church. The mainline church has thrown out the gospel. They have thrown out the Bible and the authority of Scripture and the belief that there is actually a God that redeemed us. And here's what many times the liberal church has done. They have guilted people. They have just talked about political motivation, social action, all of these things. But my argument is that will not last and it just causes people to get angry and frustrated in the dynamics of a broken world. I believe when you unite the gospel to action, it then allows us to be united with a suffering Christ as the church. That we are able to endure the hardships we see in our community with love and kindness and gentleness with the least of these. Hear me. Success is not an earthly utopia. Success isn't more privilege. Success isn't a white picket fence. Success is the kingdom of God and his righteousness pouring out into his people that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. What does that look like for us? I don't know. I know I'm yelling, and you're like, well, tell me what to do, right? I think this is something we have to wrestle with. And we will go through some of these applications as we go on through Amos, but I think God has given us an opportunity right here with this building being downtown. And God is going to give us opportunities what they are and what he might call us to, I don't know. But my prayer is that we'll be ready as a church with his power and his grace to do it. I would love to end there. You know, end with that. But that's not how the passage in the oracle ends. Even when all this is said, we see what they do. Verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. You see, the message to Israel to wake up was responded by silencing the prophets. They did not want to hear the message. I wonder as I go through all this, how much we still do not want to hear this message. We don't want to hear the protests in the streets. We don't want to watch NFL players and NBA players take a knee. We don't want to hear about incarceration rates rising or how pornography is fueling the sex industry or how the poor are crying out we don't want to hear it because we don't want to hear that we have failed as the church. We don't want to hear that. But it's true.
And then in verses 13 through 16, it gives us a picture of a powerful nation. And that's what Israel was. They had prosperity. So many things that that it weighed down their carts. They had strong warriors and horses and chariots. And they thought, you know, because we are so strong, we can just ignore these problems. They'll just go away. But God is saying, you cannot ignore them because I will even defeat you with all of that power. You knew this was coming. I hope I prepared you for this. Took two weeks of preparation now to share this with you the third week. Let me talk, lastly, very candidly to us. Some of you might not know that word evangelical, but I will lump us in that. That's people that believe there's authority of Scripture. We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been born again, and we should share the message with others. If I talk very candidly, if that's who we are, we did not used to be the power structure in America. But over the past 30 or 40 years, we have become wealthy. We have become the largest churches. We've become some of the most educated people. Again, that was not always our history. And those things, our wealth and our growth as a church and being educated and having money has caused us to have a false sense of security to ignore what God might be calling us to do. But I have seen there is a fraying in this movement. I have seen too many children of evangelical, evangelical parents abandoning the faith. I have seen too much evangelicals blinded by seeking power. I have seen too often our seeking of comfort rather than sacrifice. This is a problem. And God says that will not protect you from my judgment as a church. Maybe you're here today and you feel poor and oppressed. And you feel beaten down. I have good news for you. The gospel is for you. God says, I've come for you to save you and to rescue you. This message is good news for those that are weak. For those of us that feel like we are getting hit hard by this message, This is what I find with many of us. As much as we try to have material gain and all these things, we are still anxious. We are still fearful. We are still worried.
And God is saying, I have something for you greater than political strength, greater than monetary strength. I have something that will truly hold you up. And I've done that not by claiming an earthly crown. I've done that by giving my life to you. Maybe when you hear this message and wonder, I can't do it. It's too much to go out and to help others, to sacrifice in that way. Maybe you realize that it is God that is holding you up. And he has a greater strength for you to do it. The Lord can give us a comfort greater than simply the end of this pandemic. The Lord can give us strength greater than the comfort we find in watching Big Ten football. The Lord can give us an answer to the problems in our world and the brokenness of our world more than just giving us a conservative justice on the Supreme Court. He has given us more than that. He has given us his son and redemption that we can enter in to the hardest places of this world with his strength and his power, not with fear or anxiety or worry. So feast. Take on the one that was trampled. Take on the one that was poor, that did that for us. Take him into your life.